Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 6th of August with myself, Andreas Vantanar, and my colleagues, Simon Thompson, Harry Morgan, and Peter White. See, the thing is about Vietnam is it is a really interesting dilemma, and we've seen it in a lot of countries. Uh, the government get to a point where they go, oh, that feeding tariff's a bit generous. We're giving away a lot of money. The solar industry seems to be trucking along quite nicely. Um, we probably don't need to keep that turned on. Let's turn it off. And in most countries, you decimate the solar industry when you switch it off. Now, that's as a point of history. Uh, but in most countries, they weren't automatically able to cope with coal and gas pricing uh, when that happened. Uh, I mean, now it's almost it's almost cheaper everywhere in the world. So there's some momentum to do solar. But I think people so, forget. Why did the Vietnam government do that in the first place? We we were warned about this last year. Well, switch off their feeding tariffs. Yeah. And, and juice. Well, they had to reduce it at least. They so so Vietnam is 100 million people. It's I think it's a little bit wealthier effectively than India per capita, and yet they became the third I think the third largest market in in 2020 for solar. They installed something like 10 gigawatts, which is the same as India, which has 14 times the population. And uh, it was just quite extreme. It was also extreme so extreme in terms of how much they now have to pay out in feed-in tariffs. Uh, extreme in how much they have to try and keep investing in the grid. Uh, and they do have to build a lot more power, but the, the grid was struggling and maybe their finances were going to struggle too. I mean, I really looked at this this tariff of $83 per megawatt hour for rooftop solar, and they could probably have incentivized almost as much with 60 megawatt hours or something much more reasonable. So I, I think they were just leading money. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I, I think that's true. And I think that the only reason you find it hard now it's because everyone remembers the time when it was T3. And they're going, oh, cheapskate government isn't supporting us. Whereas if they only remember the time of 60, um, but they're not reducing it, are they? They're switching to an auction system. Yeah, they are going to. Uh, um, and we saw a, a draft of some, well, uh, yeah, one of the newspapers got their hands on a draft, which is, it, it sounds like the auction system is going to be very highly centrally controlled with um, both EVN, which is the national utility, and the Ministry of Industry will be determining price brackets for the auctioneering for different for the, for the um, energy. Uh, and the there's a thing called the Provincial People's Committee, uh, which will compile its list of approved projects. So so Vietnam is basically I think it's like China in, in its government form, except that it doesn't have all of the provincial autonomy that China has. So it's centrally controlled single party hmm. policy. It's like one Chinese province by itself, maybe, except probably in China, even the counties yeah. have a lot of authority. I mean, it's slowly building up an industrial base, but it's it's not anywhere like as rich as China. And as a result, having a monopoly for power means that that monopoly is often not got very much money to invest and their government doesn't have much of a, a sufficient tax base to give it money. So you see a lot of foreign funding going into everything from coal plants to LNG terminals to uh, solar in uh, Vietnam. And, and to some extent, if you're reliant on overseas, money from overseas countries and banks, you you build what they are that they're happy to fund, and and uh, I suspect that, that that by having that feeding tariff, they've shown Vietnam is very happy to build solar, and now they can fund 
that on an industrial scale in large grid size projects more often. And I think those banks that were signing up to fund a coal plant were just as all right, we can't do the coal plant. Um, so we'll do we'll do a big big solar. Uh, and perhaps I would explain why they got so surprised by the scale of solar. Uh, their, their plans, I think, were a bit more ambivalent about, you know, they wanted to develop every type of energy source. Uh, but then the Western finance would have been skewed to um, solar uh, and, and wind wind as well. I mean, they've got five gigawatts of wind coming online this year, which is about as large in terms of money as, as the solar last year. It's just yeah. a bit slower because of the large, larger project size. Part of it is is there is a kind of, uh, you get the impression, I've never been to Vietnam, you get the impression that there is a kind of entrepreneurialism about the not very rich, but wanting to be middle class populace. And, and that they, you know, as soon as there's an idea that you can put this on your roof and you can actually build, extend your roof, build and build tons of them and you can make money out of this, great, we'll do it. Yeah, there are and, a lot of them, a lot of these uh, small farmers, I think, or I assume they're small farmers were building these um, fake structures. I think they were fake in some sense, according to the um, regulations, so that they could say the rooftop is the solar is on a rooftop so that it gets the slightly higher tariff. But you're right about the entrepreneurialism as well, because um, it's a very rapidly industrializing place. I think it's got uh, like 8 percent power demand growth each year, 6 percent GDP. It grew 3 percent in 2020, which is quite a good performance for that year. It's ridiculous. 2020. Yeah. They reached 42 gigawatts of peak demand in June 21st, which is a record. And that's basically almost as much as California's peak demand. I think California has 40 million people. So Vietnam and 100 million people, you can sort of gauge how much power they're using per capita compared to California. So you get a sense of Asian tigers uh, are always copying their neighbours, you know, and, and Vietnam wants to be like China. And the Philippines wants to be like Vietnam and Indonesia wants to be like the Philippines. Well, perhaps that's not quite the right step. But in terms of adopting renewable energy, it might be. Um, and the, this is just, I think we got a sense of that in the Steel report, that these are rapidly industrialising countries. They want nice things. They want a thick layer of fairly well-off middle class. Uh, and they they want what everyone else has got. And and they're, they're, they've got good examples to follow that are among neighbours in a variety of political... Um, I mean, that, that is always going to be driving the renewable energy market, uh, all energy markets, if you let them. And it's only the pressure that's been brought to bear on the Japanese and Korean banks to stop funding coal plants that stop them funding just any energy. I think that the other great thing about Vietnam as well is that I think they have almost improved on China in the sense that they've been very open to international investment and international development companies in the early stages of their renewables build out, especially especially in wind, where they're actually quite far behind in terms of the technology provided in their own country. I know they're trying to start implementing sort of local import requirements now, but I think that's they've been very open to it to the extent that they can build up their own industry while actually still seeing the installations in the early stages of their, of their renewables build out. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, you don't have, you don't see these countries putting their trousers on one leg at a time. You see them sort of trying to do six things at once. You know, let's build a steel industry, let's build a shipbuilding, let's build a car industry. Um, and, oh, we're going to need energy, so let's build that as well. And, and, and. There is an opportunity there for, for them to stumble. Every country in the world can't build up a, a complex, industrialised, layered society. It's a competition. 
I mean, that's the, the basis of capitalism. It is a competition. So, um, and they, I think some of these guys are good, are good in it. Uh, it's moving on. The stimulus plan that was the bipartisan stimulus in the States. Uh, it's really interesting to see. I mean, is this just the case of Biden getting the cooperation of the Republicans before he goes and slams the door in their face and borrows three trillion dollars for decarbonisation or instead of doing that? And there is a nervousness across America that 550 billion is is what's being funded here, being talked about here. And when uh, Biden was the the uh, second in command to um, Barack Obama, Barack Obama had the 2009 crash to deal with. They they basically did the same thing. They, they, they borrowed 787 billion from the magic money tree, just splashed it out on stimulus funding, building better broadband. Well, they spent an awful lot of money on building a broadband then, and why do we need it now? And is that all that we're going to get out of this? Because if that we do, it's, you know, you're getting money going into bridges, you're getting money going into trains, um, they're building a new northeast corridor for the trains. They're, they're going to have some charge points funded, but about half as many as they had hoped. They're going to have some electric buses funded and a, a few ferries funded. But these are just new buses and new ferries. They might well be I, internal combustion engine buses. They might well be ferries that run on bunker fuel. It, it all depends on the execution whether this 550 billion is anything, and then is it going to provide resistance to coming up with a uh, climate change um, act of some description, which is the numbers are going up, but 3.5 trillion is the last number um, I read, is going to ask, um, go to the same well, which is the the treasury, and just um, spend, spend, spend. And I think everyone's worried that the Republicans will dig their heels in. And if you have a midterm election and you lose a couple of seats, you wouldn't have the control there to put through um, such a spending plan. I think I think it's already becoming a little bit obvious that Joe Biden is sort of limited in the sense of what he can do or how sweeping he can be with his climate um, policy. What we've also seen this week is his pledge to the sort of alongside what we saw with the EU saying they're going to ban the sales of new EVs by 2030. Uh, we saw Joe Biden say that he's going to make sure that EVs account for 50% of sales in the US by 2030, which just shows that he can't sort of match what the EU is doing in terms of the pace of their decarbonisation. I think while we've seen states like California propose a, uh, a complete phase out of fossil fuel vehicles by 2035, gas-loving Republicans are going to oppose that so vehemently in both the House and the Senate that, that Joe Biden actually got no leg to stand on, really. But the interesting thing will be whether or not the car makers themselves are actually making petrol and diesel vehicles in this time frame if they are actually transitioning themselves. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is that the writing's on the wall. I think they've just they've swallowed that pill. They've gone, yeah, all right, electric. You want an electric? Okay, okay, we'll do it. Everything's going to accelerate, and I think it's going to be because the best cars will be electric. No one's going to have too many horror stories. Oh, I couldn't charge my car and I was stranded on the motorway. I don't think that's going to happen. I think everyone's writing very sensible apps which show you how long, how much charge you've still got and where you could recharge your car on a long journey. And I think all of that is um, uh, coming together nicely in the right time frame. 
And I think it becomes an irresistible wave and then accelerates. And I think the European Commission, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, pulling everybody in Europe forward to 2035, making ICE vehicles illegal. And that means all 27 countries, all 29 countries, whatever the number is now. And anyone who was digging their heels in and didn't want to go to EVs quite so that quickly is, is, is accelerating their plans. So this is a constant process of accelerating accelerating until there's no money left to build a, a single uh, internal combustion engine vehicle and I, and I think that's going to be well before 2030. I think the biggest thing that Biden can do is be a good citizen uh, across the world and and drag people like uh, Bolsonaro and the Mexicans with him um, rather than you know say I'm going to decarbonize America and that's it me done. I think, I think um, it's really a better of that uh, on the global stage, um, shaming everybody else into following and, and organising little groups um, behind John Kerry to uh, to have influence in the areas we were talking about earlier, parts yeah. of Asia that are, are you know could still stumble and go, parts of Africa that could still stumble and go down the coal route. Might actually be easier to influence foreign policy than domestic if you lose a Senate seat. Yeah, certainly. In terms of making laws, yes. Americans don't seem to understand you need to give a mandate to the people you're voting for. And the most important thing is to have abundant control in the Senate. Uh, they, they, they're quite happy to vote for uh, someone going for Congress and, you know, in the Dem- Democrats and then stick with a guy that's done a good job for 30 years in the Senate in the wrong party. Because once they vote on party lines, you can't get anything done. It's like having a hung parliament all the time. should probably talk about the uh, old major results. Uh, two, two big pieces from Harry this week. Time of the year, really. There's um, always a full period of time where you've got to talk about the old majors and their results. Um and the stories are normally pretty similar across the board when you're talking about um, the six big ones. So across the six, we saw them post profits worth around $20 billion this, for this quarter, which obviously compares to a loss of around $5 billion the same quarter last year, which is probably when the pandemic was at its worst. I mean, the write downs were sort of spread, spread across the year. But in terms of the loss of oil sales, that was definitely most intense during the second quarter of 2020. And what we've really seen, yeah, it's, just, it's rather than an ex- exceptional performance from these companies, it's more just a return to profit. Um, oil demand has bounced back pretty solidly, and with OPEC uh, Plus really sort of constricting the amount of oil entering the market, uh, prices are high, so profit, uh, so margins are high, and that's why we're seeing these profits. And what we've really seen is a real change in tone from oil majors, especially the European ones who have previously been very bullish about their plans to transition to uh, renewables uh, who are now very much touting their oil successes. It's interesting to see whether or not they're doing this to sort of masquerade their actual transitions to renewable energy or whether or not they're doing this because they actually believe there's a future in oil. BP has stated that it now believes that peak oil is actually in the future is going to happen in the next sort of few years rather than happening in 2019 as it previously has stated um, and, that, and has got several sort of new oil projects in the pipeline. Um, well, we, we we did that graph a, a couple of weeks back or a month or so ago. It's very clear that um, the rate at which there's been some kind of suppression of purchasing cars for the last two years, even though electric cars have, have grown um, at leaps and bounds. 
and that there's some pent up demand for a new car uh, in the world. And when, when finances are back, um, we're going to get back to uh, the same 2019 kind of rate of purchasing cars or go beyond it. When, when you kind of factor that in and, and push forward to 10 years, you find the number of internal combustion engine cars goes up, not down. We would argue that they drive less miles in a post-pandemic world. But even so, even if we have gone peak oil, we're not going to slide off that peak very far for about eight or nine years so that everyone can confuse, you know, is it, it was it peak oil or was it peak oil in 2029? You know, and you go, well, because the similar amounts will be de- be delivered. And I think that's, but the, the thing that you can't hide is, the appetite for electric vehicles and eventually they take such a large percentage of all new cars that ice vehicles uh, even if total cars are rising are a rising time ice vehicles are a falling tide and and only evs are worth investing in. and i think that, that they you know people have investors especially have very short memories and two or three years from there everyone will be going oh, well yeah whatever happened to global warming oh there's nothing much happening but the EV story will just keep getting stronger, keep getting stronger. And it will be like falling off a cliff. Suddenly, no one will walk up, want, want petrol. And, and it will almost it just whoosh off a cliff. Um, and yeah. I think that's happening now. I think that's happening later. So that's where the argument for peak oil comes in. Uh, I think they're perfectly capable of doing the sums. They, 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 they probably do know that peak oil's passed. But it's so close to peak this year, next year, year after, that they, they don't have to admit it. Yeah, I, th- I think what's really important is that we look at um, the investment in, in peak oil. And actually BP said it's used the sort of waning investment in, in oil as one of the reasons it expects oil prices to actually stay fairly high through the next sort of few years. And the fact of the matter is, is that while BP, Shell, Total, they're all reducing their overall spending, the amount they're spending on renewables is still being massively outweighed by the amount they're spending on fossil fuels. BP is BP's plans are only really to increase it, their spending to far around five billion per year by 2030, which will sit as between sort of a third and a quarter of their total spend. Shell's currently around 15%. While we're seeing activity ramping up, it, there is still this massive disparity between what they're saying they're going to do and actually what they what they're delivering on the ground. Um, and I think that will still be the case. And I think while they're saying there's there's not enough investment in the oil, which is going to keep the prices up, I actually think there's probably going to be too much investment for projects that are then going to last beyond 2030 when we see the oil prices really start to crash. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. You're judging them by what they're actually doing, not what they're actually saying. And they're actually spending way too much on exploration and development. Uh, and they should be spending already. You should be at the position where you're spending 33% on renewables, heading towards 50%, heading towards 66% down the track. You, you should be in that transition zone. But they're so tied to having a high share price now. I mean, buying your own shares is unforgivable. There's absolutely no justification for buying your own shares. Buying your own shares is purely uh, a technical device to create more uh, demand for your stock in the marketplace and therefore to lift the price. It's always temporary. It's never permanent. And, and and changing what you do as a business is always permanent and it's never temporary. That's what they should be doing. They should be 
owning up to the fact that oh, no, I, I could buy my own stock. I'll buy a bit, but not very much, just to stabilise the, the share price and keep it high for now. But I'm not, you know, selling assets is, is the other thing you've seen them doing. And the, the reason they're selling assets is they want to be in a good debt position for that point in time when they find it hard to borrow money against assets which are decaying. They don't want to have $35 billion in debt. They want to be have, having $15 billion of debt at some point down the road. Businesses are always doing this. They, they think they've got a secret. Oh, yeah, yeah, but we're but we've got this secret. We're actually going to invest a, a lot of money in this instead later on. But no one else is doing that. They're all convinced that, that they're good poker players and that uh, they can sell off their assets to someone who's going to be stuck with them. But everyone, everyone's aware of what's going on with the oil. They, they lie about it in public. And what they say to the public and to its shareholders is, is um, uh, just it's just fluff. Um, they know that this is a seven or eight year game and you've got to be out at the end of that seven or eight years. Otherwise, you're dead. And it just, if, you're, if you're holding debt and, and, and you, your revenue starts to fall and then you're just screwed. 